for me, I always say, chase your enthusiasm. You know the difference between being excited and dreading something. And your body will tell you if it's one or the other. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited for today's show with award-winning journalist Elaine Welteroth. Elaine is the former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, the best-selling author of the memoir More Than Enough, and a spirited TV personality. She joins me today for an inspiring conversation on finding your why, career pivots, and what it means to cultivate a rich life. Welcome, Elaine. It's been so fun following your career over the last few years, not to mention your amazing COVID wedding on the stoop in Brooklyn (laughs) that nearly broke the internet. But before we get into all of that, I want to rewind and start with the beginning, your origin story. What was little Elaine like? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. This is like the first podcast interview I think I've done in a while. Oh, good. Little Elaine. Oh my gosh. I wish my mom was here with me to give you the true Hollywood story from her perspective. No, I'm just joking. But (laughs) I feel like one of the themes that I explored in my book was just this kind of universal trajectory that I think a lot of us find ourselves on where, you know, when we look back and we think about who we were when we were young, it's usually this like really sometimes unrecognizably confident version of ourselves that over time sort of gets chipped away at. And then if we're lucky at some point, we kind of have this aha moment, usually after heartbreak, after loss, after struggle, you know, trying to fit in, trying to be somebody who we're not because we're sort of conditioned to feel like we're not enough. We're not smart enough. We're not sophisticated enough. Like, so there's all these things that we do, these masks that we wear to try to be enough. And then at some point we realize like, wow, if only I could find a way to go back and reclaim those bold, unapologetic parts of ourselves that we exhibited as little kids, man, we'd be like so much happier, so much more fulfilled. And so in coming up with, you know, the title for my book and the through line for my book, I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this concept. And it was all kind of anchored in this stat that I came across that said young girls' confidence peaks at age nine. And for me, that was really staggering. And it really inspired this quest of having this kind of conversation with all kinds of women and people of all backgrounds. And it felt like a universal truth almost, you know? So where I started my book was actually, I think people thought like, oh, they're coming to my book to get like the true Hollywood story behind the time at Teen Vogue and like, you know, how Teen Vogue got woke. And like, they thought it was really going to be centered on that or to be some sort of career guidebook or handbook. But rather, I thought it was really important to start at the beginning and to tell not just my story, but to tell the story of where I come from, my family, the values that were instilled in my household, and then young, like stories from my childhood that 
hopefully would spark memories for other people, for the readers, for people out there to start like thinking about who they were when they were young and like honoring that inner child and like trying to get back to her or him. So anyway, I tell a lot of little stories. When I was in fourth grade, as one example, I have a chapter called Brown Girl Boss. And in fourth grade, I was a total boss. Like I had a hair salon in my best friend's backyard. We did like hand massages. We did hair, we did nails. And like, we went around the neighborhood and sold our little business to everybody. And you couldn't tell us nothing. We weren't making any money. <laughs> you weren't charging? We weren't. We weren't. We weren't making any Free real money. hair salon. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. It was a nonprofit. It was a nonprofit. Oh, okay. 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 Fine. Donations only. Exactly. Exactly. But it's so funny because you look back and you go, God, I think it's, I mean, you tell me, Britt, if you relate to this, but I feel like when you find moments in life where you feel lost or uninspired and you kind of feel like you've lost touch with yourself and you're going through life, but you're not feeling alive. I feel like the best thing you can do is look back and think about how you played as a child, like how you spent your time as a child before there were expectations placed on you to support a family or to pay your rent, you know, before success or failure were even constructs in your mind, like how you spent your time as a child There's so many clues there to what truly fulfills you and like what you were really put here to do and be. And I feel like that excavation process is so important because it literally, like when I think about these stories from my childhood of being in the bathtub and like having imaginary interviews with icons like Elizabeth Taylor or like Oprah, I would have these like full on riveting interviews that were totally imaginary. And I look back and I'm like, I was always meant to be a journalist. I was always meant to be someone who interviews people, who draws out the truth from people. And before I knew there was a job called the journalist, you know what I mean? And so (laughs) I often feel like there's these gems that you can unlock in those stories. And there are little breadcrumbs that lead directly from those childhood memories and stories of who you were then directly to who you can be and should be as an adult, you know? So anyway, I love that you start there. I love that you start with the origin story because so often we just kind of skip over all that. And it's just, I really love uncovering the how and the why behind the Yes. Okay. First, I'm just like mind blown by everything you said, because literally this week, the week that this podcast is coming out, I am hosting this workshop that's free called the Big Idea Bootcamp. I run this course called Self Made. It's a 10-week course helping women start and grow their business. And the first thing you have to do in order to start a business is know who you are and what you care about. Because the reality is a startup is going to be the gnarliest job you've ever had in your whole life. You're going to have to wake up and step through all kinds of shit every day. I mean, there's some awesome parts too, but it needs to be something you're passionate about. And everyone's like, but what am I passionate about? I have no idea what I'm passionate about. And we do this exercise in this boot camp where I make them draw a quadrant and I make them go through their child self, right? They have to be like five to 12. (laughs) And maybe I should make it nine if that's when confidence peaks based on your data. But it's like, what did people say you were good at? Mm -hmm. And who did you look up to and why? Mm -hmm. 
What did you enjoy doing just for fun when nothing else mattered? And what obstacles did you have to overcome? Because I think that one's important too, because I think for me, it was like my mom had depression when I was growing up and I didn't have somebody there teaching me what to do every day because she wasn't really around that much. And I didn't have a woman figure that I could look up to from a confidence perspective. So I had to build in my own self-confidence. And what do you know? Today, I have this company that's all about rooting women and confidence, <laughs> like pushing women forward. But just like you, the things I like to do for fun, I TiVo'd back in those days, like the Today Show and Oprah and Ellen and everybody because I was constantly like, I want to be that. I want to ask questions like that. I literally have an old doc, like a word doc of like Barbara Walters questions from Mm -hmm. 2020. I was like, I was 10. Why was I documenting Barbara Walters' best questions she asked somebody on 2020? Like, because that was the person I was. And look what I am, run a podcast and media company and all this stuff now. So it's like not rocket science. And I like to call it a treasure map. You use breadcrumbs and you use clues, which I love too, because it's like, we're all just on this journey of refinding our inner child. And I love the quote, like we spend nine months trying to get out of the womb and we spend the rest of our life trying to get back into it. (laughs) Like we just, we're constantly trying to be that little person that we always knew we were. And then we let life and all the other stuff get in the way. You know, it seems to me like you found it pretty easy to follow this path of like little Elaine to adult Elaine because you went straight into sort of writing and networking among the types of people that it sounds like you always wanted to be. Was there a diversion in between little Elaine and where that kicked off? Yeah, I think there were definitely some deviations that I think were really important in strengthening my resolve to really figure out why I'm here and to really do the soul searching to answer the question of what are you passionate about? And I will tell you, as a graduating senior in college, my least favorite question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what are you going to do? Or like, what are you passionate about? It's just like, leave me alone. I'm trying to figure out who I am. It's so overwhelming to be asked that question. And I really think we need to ask kids different questions. I think when we ask children or young adults, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what is it that you're going to set out to do? There's this pressure to perform an answer that's going to be impressive to the audience, Mm. to the question asker. And really, I think what we need more than anything is support in the exploration. And I think we need to remind people that there isn't only one answer to that question. There never will be. As soon as you think that this is the path, you will find that that path will lead you places you couldn't have anticipated. So it's about instilling a sense of adventure in the journey and the uncovering, right? But I think where you want to start that journey is also in a place of freedom to explore the answers to those questions, to really dedicate yourself to a life that is full of purpose and therefore passion. And I think for me, my deviation, you know, I did a few internships, one in particular in New York, that really introduced me to the smallest version of myself. I found myself in a work culture that I just did not feel a sense of belonging in. And the atrophy that I experienced just that one summer was enough to scare the shit out of me and scare me straight into 
a deeper dive into what is it that I want to be? What do I want to feel when I'm walking into work every day? This is why I think internships are so important. Even if it's an area that you don't want to work, you know, it's so important to know what you don't want to help you figure out what you do want. Mm. You know, I realized, okay, during my internship experiences, I realized, okay, wow, I'm going to spend more hours of my life at work than I will anywhere else. This has to be a place that feels expansive. I cannot feel like I'm shrinking every single day because I will tell you by the end of those three months, I was in a dark place. It was actually quite scary to see how quickly an environment can rock you and make you question who you are and start to kind of shrink you. So I came out of those experiences like determined to figure out what I'm great at, what I care about, and to pursue it relentlessly, unapologetically. Like I had to silence the voices in my head that said, you have to make X amount of money. You have to have a sexy job title at a sexy company. You need security above all else. I mean, I came out of college in a global recession. So I feel for the students who are in the workforce right now, post-pandemic. And I think there were a lot of similarities. I think that there's this panic that you sort of inherit that can make you a fear-based person and make decisions based on fear. And I just was more afraid. I became more afraid of being on the wrong path for my soul than I was of pursuing a path that was perhaps even too competitive to ever succeed in. Mm. But I was able to commit to the pursuit because mm-hmm. I thought the pursuit is going to be far richer and more fun and more adventurous. And I'm going to feel more alive on that path. So I'm going this way. I tried that. It wasn't for me. So I'm grateful, honestly, for that slight deviation. And I know for a lot of people listening, they're like, girl, you figured that out before you graduated from college. Like most of us spend like decade, you know, sometimes a whole yeah. decade in the quote unquote wrong career or in the wrong path before you start to figure it out. But that's why I think one of the benefits you and I, it sounds like we have some similarities in that we are extremely curious and we're truth seekers. Mm-hmm. So I think we are more prone to interrogate ourselves, mm-hmm. our lives, what is true for us. And I think that has been a benefit to me because I can be in touch with myself enough to know when I'm shrinking. And those are the terms I think, you know, happy, unhappy, listen, you will go up and down every single day, no matter what path you choose. But to me, I like to use the language shrink versus expand. Mm. It really forces you to be in your body and the intelligence of your body to tap into whether someone or an environment or a decision is good for you or not good for you, healthy for you or unhealthy for you. Are you shrinking or are you expanding? And I think that's a great lens through which to decide, like, should I do this thing? Should I go for this or not? Should I stay with this person that I'm in a relationship or should I leave?
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I actually just had this workshop (laughs) at this women's weekend I did. And there was an intuitive there, but she was really about like somatic healing, which means like being in your body and the mind-body connection, right? Like when you get like a lump in your throat or your stomach feels like it has butterflies in it or your chest, your heart feels alive. Those are all actually signals that are going up to your brain. But the truth is your body doesn't lie. Your brain can be like, no, I'm not in love or no, I'm not scared right now. But your body's like, want, like you're literally maybe shitting your pants because you're so scared. And <laughs> your body's like, no, actually you are. But she taught us this really cool thing, which was once you sort of like, close your eyes and think about a big decision that seems really scary for you and feel where that comes up for you. And for a lot of people, it's like in their stomach and it feels like clenching or tightening. And then you practice another one, which is like, think about a moment in the last month that was like just pure joy and love. For me, it was like my kids running on the beach and they were like hugging me without me asking them to. And it was like chest opening and to your point, expansion, tingling, And then she said, okay, now stand up straight and close your eyes and think about a decision that you want to make. And that might be like, am I in the right job? Should I start a business right now? Should I leave my partner? Whatever it is, you have to say it out loud. She says it's important to say it out loud because your body has to hear it instead of think it, right? The mind-body connection. And she says like, naturally, if you're standing up straight and you like are really focused on your body saying it out loud, you're going to either lean forward or lean backwards. And your body knows like which way you want to move. And there might be times where you stand still and you're sort of stuck. And that's a great opportunity to go and ask more questions or to like sit on this idea and keep coming back to it once a week, maybe asking the question out loud. But just like these little things where you're feeling your body and the intent that you naturally know inside of you is the right one. And I think it's so true because... Even as I was starting my company, Britain Co., I had left Google. I had been in this super high-paced Silicon Valley scene. It was a digital company, but it felt like lighter and more like lifestyle-oriented, you know, focused on creativity and women and all these things than starting a startup in like the healthcare space or fintech or something like that. And I knew I could make a lot more money if I worked in one of these other kinds of startups. And I had good ideas for startups in that space. But my heart was naturally exploding thinking about the change I could help make for women by doing this thing called Britain Co. that I had an idea about. And it was really scary and it was lonely because I didn't have a co-founder in this scenario, whereas I had a co-founder that wanted to work on like the healthcare startup with me. But it just felt right. And all of my girlfriends were like, Brit, like you are coming alive talking to me about this idea. Like this is naturally what you want to do. I was like literally leaning in. And so I did it and it was scary. And, you know, I think that's kind of probably how you felt, right? When you were transitioning in your career in different moments in time. Is there 
anything that rings true for you about what I just said in terms of when you have to make a big change? Absolutely. I start with the big transition of going from college into the quote unquote real world, because I think that's the first time we have to pivot and be self-directed about where we're going next. And I don't think the world prepares you for those types of transitions. But what I've discovered and what I think we all have discovered is that that transition don't just happen that one time. You will face these pivotal transitional moments in your life and career and in your relationships over and over and over again. So being able to tap into the intelligence within, the intelligence within your body, which is what you're speaking to, is critical. It's a critical life skill that we do not talk about enough. Listen, part of our feminine power is being in touch with our body and the intelligence within. And I think while I didn't necessarily have that language for it when I was exiting college and going into the real world, all of those kind of spiritual laws, which sound kind of woo woo, were so practically useful for me. One of the things that I always say don't chase the sexy. I think it's so easy for us to get a little bit caught up in like, what looks good, what sounds cool, what might look good on Instagram or on your resume and let that guide us. But then you are extrinsically motivated and that runs out quick. So to be able to tap into like, not what sounds sexy to anybody else, but what actually lights you up and makes you, as you say, lean in, like whether it's lean in, light up, whatever speaks Mm -hmm. to you, that is you tuning into that life force inside you. That leads you to the truth. So yeah, I mean, I've experienced this sort of tumultuous kind of soul searching moment a number of times. Like that was the first one. And it gave me the courage to say like, listen, I don't know if I'm going to make this big dream come true, but I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say out loud for the first time that I want to work at a big magazine in New York city. And like, I want to write cover stories. I want to interview some of the most interesting people in the freaking world. I think I could be great at that. And I have to stop worrying about whether I sound insane to people like one of those crazy dreamers who's going to be a failure to launch and who's going to end up back in my parents' house. Like I'm going to risk being that person to take the chance on me to be the biggest version of myself that I can possibly be. And like, I went for it. And I think it takes that in order to make a dream come true. You know, I came from a very small town. People didn't really dream of going to New York City or to pursue these big careers. And so I did feel like I was sort of on my own in navigating this path in a lot of ways. But the things that I learned in those isolating, lonely, character building moments are the things that have become tools at every turn in my life and career since. So I'm grateful for them. And the other thing, as we talk about like the intelligence within and tapping into our body for the answers that sometimes our mind has us confused about. And I think it really does also come back to our ancestors. Like we carry our ancestors with us, whether we recognize it or not. And when you do recognize it, there's such a power in tapping in to that ancestral intelligence to remember that you carry the blood of people who have struggled and overcome more than you could have ever imagined living through. And then for me, I will tell you as a Black woman, navigating corporate America, navigating the fashion media landscape, 
it is extremely difficult. And I think women of any background really will relate to this idea of how hard it is to advocate for yourself along the way. There is so much out there. There are so many messages externally and that have been internalized that tell us just make it work. Say yes, make people comfortable, like just work harder than everyone. And we can look up and realize that we have overburdened ourselves to the point of burnout and lost sight of really what our purpose is in any space we step into. And so a lot of women find ourselves overworked, underpaid, undervalued, underestimated, and we have a hard time for our worth. It sounds, again, quite woo-woo, but it became practically useful to me to think about my ancestors that enter the room with me, that never had these opportunities in their lifetime that I'm having, and that I owe it to them to use my voice to advocate, not just for me, but for them and for everyone who's coming ahead. And I am doing this for us and remembering that it's bigger than you. You're doing it for the next woman who's going to come in behind you, the next woman of color, a black woman who's coming up behind you. You are setting a new precedent. So it is not just about you. It is about the doors that you're opening, the kind of cycles and chains that you're breaking. And I believe there's a ripple effect with being able to harness that kind of power. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if you relate to any of that. Uh Totally. I mean, my ancestors largely didn't go to college, weren't educated, definitely weren't branding themselves. <laughs> Very small household names, not like Oprah. But like, I think it's so interesting what you said about paying it forward for the next generation too. It's this like, look back and look forward kind of thing happening at once, this duality of like making my family proud, my ancestors proud, doing the things they fought hard for, but maybe couldn't all the way achieve. And then in the immediate term, paying it forward, like I have children, like I want them to see what a woman in the 2020s can be. And then also like, I reach a lot of women and we see each other now online because of social media. And I don't want to paint the prettiest picture ever. Like it's not always super easy. And I feel really stuck a lot too. I, in the last year, went from being an entrepreneur, which is really hard in itself, to putting myself in a new pool of uncomfortableness, <laughs> becoming a venture capitalist who started her own $100 million fund during a pandemic and learning how to run the ropes of the investment world, which is a whole new ballgame for me. It's a very, very male-dominated field. And part of my reason for doing it is to show women that we can play those games. We can do the hard things. We can enter into an industry that doesn't really see people like us around. And and you don't even have to be like a finance woman, quote unquote. Like you can have style and be a venture capitalist. You can like be really into pop culture and be a venture capital. Like there's a new frame on this. And it also gives me the opportunity to invest in more women and to do all these different things. So like I totally hear you. And I think it's like looking back and looking forward all at once. Well, and here's the like woke part, looking inside, right? Because you want this to be super true to you as well. So thank you for that. I love that. And I think it's really important for everyone out there to know that like everyone feels stuck. Everyone feels a sense of imposter syndrome. And that little thing inside of you 
is the voice. Oprah calls it the whispers, right? (laughs) It's like, there is a whisper telling you what to do, but you might not be listening to it. And she says, you got to listen to the whisper before it becomes a roar. Yeah, because the roar can be an ugly roar. Yeah, absolutely. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Do you make vision boards or do you manifest? Like when you were saying your thing about being at a national magazine, I did this too. Like when I was 18, I made a bucket list of the things I want to achieve in life. One of which ironically was to meet Oprah. And then it happened. I like got invited to this random dinner where she sat across from me. Anyway, I still do this. I'm like, what do I want to be? Where do I want to be seen? What do I want to accomplish? What are the actual numerical goals I want for my financial life? You know, what list do I want to make? That all sounds really superficial on the outset. And some of the things are much more deep, right? Like my relationship with my family and all those things. But like, I think it's worthy to put that on a piece of paper and to look at that every day and be like, yeah, I want to be a TED speaker. I want to be on the time 100 list, you know, like, because it's just like launching yourself forward and telling yourself that you are worthy enough to go do that thing, even if it seems really far afield from you right now. Absolutely. I am all about manifesting. And I think there's so much power in writing it down, like writing down what you want. And so many times it's happened to me where I've said something, I've had a thought, that thought started becoming a burning desire. And then it kind of sits there for a while. I don't want to say it out loud. I don't want to jinx it. And then I write it down and I forget about it. And then it happens. And I was always a collager for sure when I was growing up. And I definitely had a vision board before I moved to New York, which I still have. And every place I move it it with me, it was cutouts from Ebony and Essence magazine. It was very visual more than sort of tactical. It sounds like your bucket list was more specific, like in terms of the things you wanted to achieve. I was creating a world, you know, that I wanted to be Mm. a part of. And it was a visual world where Black women were the stars and they were stylish and whip smart and like the bosses. And it was colorful. It was full of spirit. And, you know, just that you look at it and you just smile and you think like, this is what it is to be alive. And growing up, I used to draw pictures of women I do draw and paint and I would always find myself drawing these women. And it's so amazing because this yesterday, my mom called me while I was on set at Project Runway and she's like, I love this outfit. And I was like, mom, I became the woman I always wanted to be. I'm like, this is like the kind of outfit that I would draw on my ladies when I was younger or that I would see in magazines and I'd lean in and say, God, like, and just be so attracted to these kinds of powerful, bold, stylish forces of nature known as women. And like, I wanted to be that, you know, but one of my sort of tactical tools, which actually was handed down to me that I've inherited from Tyra Banks, who I had the opportunity to sit down and have this like several hour long brunch date with her years ago before I left Teen Vogue. And I kind of was telling her about my, you know, my, my vision of where I wanted to go and my career. And she showed me something that she calls a mind map. And it basically is a visual representation of all of her businesses and all of her projects. But it starts with her in the center, and then it branches out into the different spaces that she wants to play in. And then it branches even more specifically into 
specific projects that she wants to create or has created. And then as you build on this mind map, you start to apply monetary values to each bucket and you start to see this visual matrix that is the ecosystem of your business that you are building. And I think for women like us who are the term multi-hyphenate is so played out, but like truly more than one thing and building a business with multiple prongs, multiple tentacles, if you will, but all with a core mission and a core values and a singular purpose that can be expressed in a multitude of ways. Like I think it's an organizational tool to help see it all Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. see how it all fits together and how it will grow and expand over time. So when I was leaving Teen Vogue, I had this big white board that I was building my own mind map on. Mm -hmm. And every time it was always in my office. No one knew it was there because it was always turned around. So you only saw the back of it. And we actually used the back of it to pin pages that we needed to show Anna or whatever. We would use the board at the back of the board for Teen Vogue. But if you flipped it around, it had like my master plan on it. And <laughs> anytime I had like a bad day or a frustrating meeting and I'm like, I'd come back into my office, I'd close my door and I would turn that mind map board around and just keep on adding to it. I just add to it. And when I tell you everything on that board has manifested and some, I am not lying to you. And when I tell you there are some parts of that mind map that I couldn't be super specific because I didn't have the revelation yet about what that thing would become, but I knew For example, that I wanted to work in unscripted television. I didn't know what that would look like, what the, you know, show would be, what network. I couldn't even envision exactly what that would look like. But like you, I grew up on Oprah and my mom would call me little Barbara Wawa. I knew like this impulse that I have to ask questions and tell stories like it needs an unscripted television platform someday, somehow. And Literally six months, maybe six months after I quit Teen Vogue, I got the call about Project Runway. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? Really, God? This is how it starts? Yeah. Interesting. Didn't see this coming. Don't see exactly even now how this leads to the thing I had in my mind, which is more of a talk show. But you have to be willing to say yes when these opportunities arrive that are absolutely a part of a master plan that is unfolding both with your participation and also kind of it goes beyond you. I do believe that there's a divine flow and orchestration to our lives that sometimes we just need to surrender to. And sometimes it doesn't make sense in our head, but then our bodies kind of know, like going back to the earlier part of our conversation, you know, kind of talking about how do we know when something is good for us or not good for us? How do we make decisions? I always come back to this. And I know people have their own language for it. People will say like, listen to your heart, follow your gut. But I'm sure. like, what does my heart sound like? Yeah. <laughs> my gut kind of is like, I don't really know how to follow my gut. Like, what does that really mean exactly? So for me, I always say, chase your enthusiasm. Like, mm. you know the difference between being excited and dreading something. And your body will tell you if it's one or the other, you know, and I think like it supersedes whatever our mind is saying. So with my mind map, again, I would put all the categories of the spaces I wanted to be in the different projects I wanted to be a part of. And then I had some that were just sort of like unscripted TV, 
And then like kind of question mark. And then as opportunities, you start to attract opportunities in these different spaces. And then I think you need a filter for what is for me and what is not for me, what serves me and what does not, what's going to get me where I'm trying to go and what does not. And I think for me, the filter has been, does it feel like enthusiasm or does it feel like dread? And if I can get excited about something genuinely, thoroughly enthusiastic about something, then I know it's a hell yes. But I don't do yes. I either do hell yes yes or no. no. Yeah. Cheryl Sandberg, who's a mentor of mine, always says that. She's like, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And by the way, I use that advice for not just like major life decisions, but like, do I want to go to dinner with the girls tonight? Eh. I think I'd kind of like to stay home and watch like Netflix. (laughs) It's a no. Or sometimes definitely it's a hell yes, especially if there's like a good cocktail. But like, yeah, I think it's a great thing to use in your everyday life. And I think we as women, and I'm being generalist, not everybody, but like we just do what people expect of us. To your point before, we're just martyrs, right? Especially like I'm a mom. Like I just serve, 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 serve other people, serve other people, do it. My parents think is great. Do it. The world thinks is great. You know, and even when you do get some followers behind you, like you can probably attest to this, like you want them to be proud of you and do what seems logical as a next step. But sometimes that's really counterintuitive to how you're feeling inside. And, you know, COVID has been this whole example of things. Like I went from like being on the Today Show and Good Morning America and all this stuff all the time to like becoming a venture capitalist, but still running that company. And like, it's just doesn't really seem like the logical path that most people would have expected, but it's so true for me and where I'm at in my life right now. So I appreciate that. Elaine, any other major standout career or life lessons you've learned from the women around you or the women before you? Mm, I really do think a lot about kind of the responsibility that comes with being a first in your family to do something, to be in certain rooms and to know that you're representing your family and your ancestors and your community. Like I get a lot of empowerment by thinking about that and really visualizing my mom, even my grandmother, my great grandmother. And these women that have worked so hard their whole lives. And with my mom, I'm able to share some of, you know, my achievements and what they've offered with her. Like I've been able to take my mom to Paris and bring her with me on my book launch. And we do all these really cool things together, but it really makes everything more meaningful when you recognize that you're a part of something, as Beyonce says, you are a part of something way bigger. Growing up and even during my 20s, I think I was in such forward motion and so relentlessly in pursuit of my dreams, you know, my singular, my dreams, that I didn't have the time or didn't feel it necessary to really look up, look back, contextualize my climb and put it in this larger context of like what it means for my family and my people and But then I think there was a turning point and it came, you know, around the time I was writing my book, it made me more reflective about who I've come from and how that informs my walk in this world and what I owe them and how they continue to serve me and 
it's almost like a relationship has been building and being able to have the opportunity to write a book that put me in conversation with my elders, asking them questions about their lives, to collect stories that I hadn't really heard before, gave me a sense of pride in where I come from and who I come from. And to be able to share that with the world was really special. And then my great-grandmother passed away. And I don't even know while she was alive that I really recognized the significance of having four generations of women from the same lineage still on this planet and how anchoring that is until she was gone. Mm. So it was really sort of kismet how I ended up working with Ancestry because they reached out to me around that time. And we partnered and they walked me through my DNA and where my people come from. And then I was able to partner with them more recently again to go even deeper. And we worked with this incredible expert, Nika Sewell-Smith, who focuses on people who have descended from Africa and identifying where in Africa your people are from, where they migrated to when they became enslaved people, where did they end up, what happened to those families. And she found stories and names and records, and it started to paint this more clear picture of the kind of people that I come from. And it really made me feel a sense of pride. And it moved me. And I was like, am I getting older? Truly, I think that when you're thinking about your life through the lens of just your own journey, I think you're missing out on this like much broader, more beautiful kaleidoscope that you are a part of. And one of the findings that Nika presented to me almost moved me to tears. She told me about, I think it was my fifth great-grandfather who was a freed slave. And he went to vote for the first time, just, I believe, within five years of being emancipated and brought other people. And you see his name. He signed his name. He could read. He could write. He was someone who wanted his voice to be heard. He was someone who was resilient. He was civically engaged in his community and had experienced, I mean, the absolute most dehumanizing events in his life and still found that deep resilience. Like he drew from that deep well of resilience to make a life for himself and his family that he could be proud of. And to see pictures and to see the handwriting and to see those records was an incredibly grounding experience for me, especially as a Black person in America in 2020. Yeah. I actually have a similar crazy story that could be its own podcast. We should come back and do this (laughs) together, obviously, because I have an adopted father and never knew what my ancestry line was on that side of the family. I figured it out. And there's some crazy stories as part of that. But the one thing that is so meaningful to me is I'm Hispanic. (laughs) Like, surprise, didn't know that ever. And so now I could see like my ancestors are from both Mexico and Spain. I'm like a quarter Hispanic. Like it gives me such an appreciation for such a different part of the population. And Anyways, it's been really revelatory for me. And to your point, like I know you come from the Black community and just knowing that me and my ancestors come from the Hispanic community, Latina community, like 
really reframes the way I see a lot of the world as well. And it's really beautiful. And I didn't know any of that until literally a year ago. So it's been really crazy to learn all of that. And Elaine, I have to say that you and I are very similar. And I'm really glad we got to do this together. And I really am so inspired by the way that you've been so courageous to listen to yourself, your body and your mind, to follow those dreams, to show up for those in your family that maybe had the same kind of resilience, but didn't get to make it as far as they wanted to, and to pay it forward as well to many generations of women in the future inside your family and out. And we always leave our listeners with one piece of homework for the week. So is there one assignment or task you would assign everyone listening to this week? Well, this is what I'm always a proponent of. And I learned this from one of my dear friends, a fellow author. Her name is Priya Parker. And she has an amazing book called The Art of Gathering. She's a friend of mine too. Sorry. Okay, keep going. Don't you love Priya? She's the best. Yes. But she inspired me to do this thing called, let's just say scheduling joy. Because when you work around the clock, especially now during the pandemic, we're all working on Zoom and that sort of work-life balance, if it ever existed, it has become non-existent now because there's just no separation between work and home. And so she has this brilliant idea about like just scheduling joy, just like any other meeting on your calendar. So like, even if it's just one hour, one time a week, hopefully you can build up to more than that, but where you block out time for joy. Put it on the calendar. Show up the way you would show up to any other meeting. Don't skip it. Don't put it off. And be present for whatever feels like joy in that moment. It gives you an opportunity to do that sort of check-in with your body to ask yourself, what do you need right now? What feels good right now? What feels like joy to me right now? And it's really important that you understand that it's not like scheduling yoga or like scheduling, even a massage. It's like not about scheduling anything in advance. It's about tapping in, in that moment to whatever feels like joy in that moment. And so sometimes it might just be freaking crying, Mm -hmm. like releasing what you've been carrying. Sometimes it might be calling your mom. It might be going for a walk. I chased a waterfall one time. I was like, I want to find a waterfall. So Mm -hmm. I did. And like this other time I ate a whole freaking box of pizza. Like That would be my joy for sure. (laughs) Right? But it just allows you to nourish this relationship with yourself. Yeah. And it's it's so re-energizing. My mom always says like, you can't go nowhere on E. Yeah. If you're on empty, you need to figure out how to recharge your battery. And Mm -hmm. this has been such an incredible practical tool for me. And it has truly, I mean, it supercharged me during the process of writing my book you find yourself like languishing in front of your laptop for like 15 hours. And you're like, you don't really have a lot to show for it that you're proud of, you know? And then this practice has allowed me to step away for one or two or sometimes three hours, come back. And I was so much more productive. I was banging out 45 pages in the time that it would Mm -hmm. take me to typically do like five to 10, you know, like I was just supercharged. I felt focused. I felt clear. I felt motivated. I felt energized again. And I think like we need to remember in those moments when we're stressed the hell out, we have the most to do that those are the moments where you need 
that joy break more than ever. It will help you in all of those things on your to-do list. Like it will help you show up more. It will help you show up even better for all of the things you need to tackle in your life. Ah, I love it. Joy breaks, everybody. One hour this week. You need to find time for it. And I like that you said, schedule it like a meeting. It's not yoga. You can't skip it. You got to go to it (laughs) and show up and be prepared. Elaine, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom with us. I hope everyone out there feels a little bit more inspired as well to choose joy and choose themselves. And thank you so much for tuning in. If you think a friend or family member would enjoy this episode, don't forget to share it. And if you want to leave us feedback on the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much, Elaine Welteroth. And to everyone out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 